Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Let's talk about charting. Today we're sitting down with the guys from Prismatic Labs to have a look at what it means to implement the various sharding specs that are floating around. So today we're going to be talking about uh, sharding. And we're sitting here with the guys from Prismatic Labs. Maybe you guys could start this off by quickly introducing yourselves. Uh, sure. So I'm uh, Preston Van Loon. Um, I'm currently a software engineer at Google uh, and uh, co-founder of Prismatic Labs. Hey, everyone. My name is Raul Jordan. I'm also the co-founder of Prismatic Labs. And uh, we can get into a little bit about how we started this. We're fully remote. We started out because we were excited about the sharding roadmap. There was a spec out there, but not enough people working on it. And uh, Preston and I just kind of found each other organically uh, via Twitter and uh, via Reddit. And um, since then, we just started a repo and started coding up. I'm interested in hearing how you guys got into like blockchain stuff in the first place. Were you involved for a long time? Had you been working on any like client code previously? Or was this like your first foray into writing client code or like core infrastructure stuff? Yeah, for me, this was, um, I, I only got started on Ethereum just just last year, um, summer 2017. And I thought it was really intriguing. I'm wondering like, how does this work? And I feel like this could be something really great and kind of make an impact on, on the universe. So I started asking, how can I be, how can I be a part of that? So I took down the, uh, I pulled down the go Ethereum client and I started digging around, like, how does that work? Started missing out smart contracts. And then I started looking for problems to solve. Uh, and I found that, you know, the deeper I went, the harder the problems got. And, and finally got to sort of the fundamental protocol layer where, where I'm wondering, you know, why is this so slow and how can I make it better? Um, so in, uh, towards the end of the year, um, sometime, I guess, in December, I started reading that, um, the charting specification was seemingly ready to, to start working on. Um, it's just, you know, changed a lot since then, but I started asking why is nobody working on this? There's a a spec out there. It seems to be like fully thought about maybe needs a little bit more review, but, but it's there and no one, no one seems to be working on it. So, um, started broadcasting, the same uh, message as Raul said, you know, hey, who's working on this and h- how can we get involved? And and we sort of met back in January uh, and sort of put this team together. But but prior to that, I didn't have any um, Ethereum client experience or, or any sort of like substantial open source development on on a product like this. Yeah, for me, this has also been a major, you know, major project. Uh, you know, my first really big foray into having managing an open source project. So I started hacking on Ethereum around early 2017. Um, I was, you know, trying to figure out where I could make the most impact. Um, and well, what could I enjoy the most? Came from a background in machine learning and also in uh, web application development. So, you know, I started out by building DApps. Quickly became frustrated by MetaMask. 
um the tooling was way too early i was like we need to improve this at the core level so once again started hacking around on go ethereum uh, just messing around trying to break things trying to see where the bottlenecks were and um, eventually that that led me into wanting to build something major on top of it um i was very impressed at how how big the project had become um and it, it just became very very big so with sharding we knew we knew that it was still very early and we had the chance to kind of shape shape the roadmap of it and kind of bring our own, um, you know, bring our own skill sets. So, yeah, so that's kind of how things started near the end of the year was very certain that I wanted to work on this sharding spec that was out there. Um, and it was just the right people at the right time and everything just assembled organically. I added just a few questions about like prismatic labs specifically, like where did you come up with the name? <laughs> uh, I was walking down, uh, I think, uh, Chelsea, uh, in, in January here in New York. Um, I was here just, uh, you know, just kind of visiting some friends and doing some, some random errands. And, um, that was around the time when I met Preston online and I realized he lived in New York. So we set up a time to meet. And when we were in person, actually, um, I was like, Hey, what do you think about the name Prismatic Labs? You know, like, um, you know, the Ethereum logo kind of reminds you of, uh, of a prison. And, you know, it goes well with that theme. So why don't we just call it that? And we just rolled with it. Nice. Did, did you really think of it that, like that day or that weekend? Yeah, <laughs> that same day, that same day we met. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> I think it's sort of, it hints at the sacred geometry that seems to like be involved with a lot of the projects in the space. Right. So that's cool. Yeah, it also kind of goes with, <laughs> with the whole sharding thing because you have one beam coming in and then a, an array coming out the other side. So it's kind of like, I don't know. It seemed to to be a really good idea. Nice. So let's talk a little bit more about the actual organization. So you kind of joined, as, as you described it, Preston, you sort of put a call out, you broadcast that you wanted to do something on this project and then Raul joined. But what is your organization made of? Like, who are you guys? Yeah, like, like we said, we sort of just broadcast our message out there to get anybody interested in uh, to see who, who who wants to work with us. Um, Earl and I met and we sort of said, okay, we're going to, we're going to put a team together and it's going to be great. So for, I think over the course of a week, we, we kept broadcasting that if people had been already hearing us saying, you know, we're interested in, and now we're putting a team together. So we found, I think four people, maybe five people initially, and we started just an email thread and kind of like getting to know each other and sort of seeing what people are interested in. And out of those five people we found, f four of them were were really, really, really amazing. Uh, one of them kind of f disappeared off the planet, but the other four, like we're still working with them and they're like, huge contributors. And it's just like we're, we were, I, I guess, super lucky because it seems like this doesn't happen very often, but we found these really quality contributors almost immediately and organically. And now are you guys a company? Like what are, what is Prismatic Labs? You, you founded a company with six of you. How many are you now? So I think we're um, right now. Yeah. We're around six people that are active and we, you know, we started, we started, we found Preston. I found the company kind of very early on when we met. So we, we started it out um, and essentially, you know, it's, it's a, it's a major open source initiative. So everyone is kind of, you know, we have contractors, you know, everyone on our team is in different parts of the world. And um, that's essially how we operate. So we, we're just focused at the moment on getting the sharding spec, you know, getting the implementation rolled out, 
Um, and then later down the line, we'll be thinking about how we can grow even more as a team. So as Anna mentioned, you got the, um, some grants for doing a lot of this work. And um, I think you were one of the first recipients of like the scaling grants from the Ethereum Foundation. And what was that process like? And was this something that you like had your eyes on when you set out to, to start this project and like you were imagining this as a way to get funding or, or was this something that sort of popped up after you'd already started working? Uh, it was a function of timing. I think um, we were very fortunate that these grant initiatives were just picking up near the start of the year. We started out actually with no idea of how we would be funded up for this project. Um, we knew that there were, there were these initiatives on the horizon, but didn't know about the logistics or whether or not we would get it. So we only ended up applying a little bit down the line after we, after we had something concrete to show. So yeah, I, I think it was it was perfect timing. You know, people and these organizations like the Ethereum Foundation, the Ethereum Community Fund, um, and other projects were willing to put aside uh, a bunch of money to help these projects. As you know, like the, it's 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 been a frequent discussion on how to monetize kind of protocol layer stuff, and and I think uh, we were right at the beginning of that you know of that grant movement. Yeah, and and when we started. Like that, we we were planning on doing it without funding anyway. We just wanted to get involved. Uh, having having these grants and fundings kind of helps us be be more involved. But we didn't uh, imagine that we would get as as many as much interest or as many grants as we have so far. So something we've talked about on this podcast a lot before is this concept of like grants versus sustainability, and and how do you actually build a business around core infrastructure. Um, grants are great. I think they're a great initiative. And like the original motivation is basically like, we'll give you some runway to do this cool stuff without having to worry about the overhead of VCs or whatever like exists in the traditional world of how you do this. How do you think about that, um, you know, opposition of like grants versus actually building a business model and trying to have sustainability? Yeah, this is something we've been thinking about for a little while. So we we the reason we have the grants and and that we got the grants is that we're not at least not immediately thinking about profitability or how we can make money off this. We're really just trying to make something nice to the community to sort of help build the ecosystem or sort of make Ethereum better. Um, but this brings the question of it's sort of what happens after the grant and how do we, how do we survive our own project as a company? Um, we got some funding through grants. It's, it's not quite enough to, to take all six or seven of us full time and sort of work on this without a, a long-term plan. So we're still kind of thinking through that, but I think, I think it's easier from, from our perspective to just uh, build because we we don't we don't really have to think about that right now, and we can just sort of solve the the problems that we want to solve and and, and work in the way we want to work and and sort of just build without having to worry about VCs or anybody asking us questions about you know when are they going to get a return on their investment. I think that's a good point of like there's a there's a difference here between building a business model for profitability and for sustainability. So sustainability versus profit sustainability means you can work on this stuff and not have to starve. Profitability means you're expecting some exponential payoff for a return on investment. And um, 
And when you're talking to a lot of people who propose these sort of uh, payout structures on like on chain itself or like through a DAO or something, it's usually sustainability. And like that's, I think the, as a community, we need to get better of separating those two things of like, it's bad, it's evil to be a profitable corporate business, but we still need to be sustainable. We still need to be able to put food on the table. Yeah, one of the conditions on the grants was really that there would be no baked in like make money schemes inside of sharding. Like we wouldn't put any sort of like rent collecting schemes inside of our sharding code and you know, the protocol layer things. So yeah, I mean, we definitely want, you know, our goal is that we want to be a sustainable, sustainable team that is exists and builds things beyond sharding. Um, but at the moment, we're just, it just, it just, it's just that we're focused on that. But, you know, I think with the grants, I think a lot of the grants are mostly just enough to get you to a certain milestone or to a certain point. And then after that, you kind of you kind of run out of options. So that's something to think about for the long term, right? Like after we reach every milestone, right? Like how can we grow and how can we build something even more beyond that? I mean, it, it sounds also like these grants are kind of filling in that gap it, between like a VC revenue generating company or a company that or project that could be tokenized because sharding and like this kind of thing, maybe you could try some tokenization, but I feel like it would undermine the point of this which is like scaling something that already exists and not right. adding an extra layer on top of that. So it's these kinds of projects like where the ecosystem super needs it, um, but there's not necessarily going to be like profit or ICO potential for outside projects to come in. And so they have to create these grants, which I think is awesome. But I think you do raise this good point of like what, so yeah, what happens with those after? Like who's going to maintain the sharding project Will that need to be something that the Ethereum Foundation continues to to uh, fund? Yeah, I heard I heard recently the words maintenance fund or Ethereum maintenance fund. I don't know if that's uh, in existence at, at this point, but people are thinking about it as far as I know. Digging into the actual meat of the topic here, sharding. What is sharding in your guys' words? Yeah, so sharding essentially is the ability to... So, you know, to not have every node in the blockchain validating and processing the entire state. So essentially, every node only has a certain responsibility towards the entire state of the network. And that allows you for greater scalability. So the idea originally is that you have a main chain, um, you know, and then you have a bunch of shard chains that, you know, are pegged to this main chain. And essentially, it's a way to parallelize uh, the processing of blocks and uh, maintenance of the state across the entire Ethereum network. So instead of having, you know, the 1.2 terabytes, I think now for the full archival Ethereum state, a single node would only have to contribute to a small portion of that and kind of be, be in charge proposing uh, blocks on a particular shard. So that's, that's the core idea. And it's not something new. It's been something that's been around uh, for a very long time in distributed systems and database design. Um, and except that here we have the constraint that we need to maintain things decentralized um, and we need to maintain a high degree of security which is something that's been explored in something called the scalability trilemma, which you guys have probably seen, which is that, you know, when you build a blockchain, you have to pick two, either scalability, decentralization, or security. And that's something that's been holding true for, you know, since kind of the start of, uh, start of blockchain technology. So sharding is the most sensible solution to this because it's able to, it's able to propose something that's right in the middle of the scalability trilemma. So you're able to get the sweet spot between all three of these different, um, these three different benefits. Yeah. Sharding is, um, a protocol layer advancement, we're calling it layer one. So this is something that builds on the, like the fundamental, changes the fundamental way that Ethereum works f to achieve better scalability. 
and and like Rose said, it is uh, sort of an old concept. Uh, it's something that's been used in databasing for a long time. Essentially, if you partition your database into smaller pieces, then in theory you can have just as you know, if you had one database before and now you have five, you have five times capacity. So you, if you're sharding in that way with horizontal scaling, you can get a big improvement. So while that's been around for a long time in traditional databasing systems, doing it for a blockchain and Ethereum in particular comes with a lot of complexity and caveats. It's, it's going to be a multi-year project with a lot of different phases and we have a lot of work ahead of us. One of the things to consider is that in, in this case, you know, traditional sharding designs, they rely on a central coordinator uh, to be able to kind of relay and, and, and basically consolidate information into a single main shard. In this case, you know, as you, as you can imagine, um, we cannot rely on central coordinators. We assume that everything has to be decentralized. So you need to come up with other interesting crypto economic schemes, um, interesting like finality guarantees or some interesting randomness mechanisms to allow the system to function. And we'll get into that a bit later. The two analogies that I usually use are either, depending on the person I'm talking to, are either that um, imagine that you start up 100 Ethereum networks, but they all share the same security pool. Obviously, that's the crux of the matter is like, how do you get them to share the same security pool? Uh, but that essentially saying like all of these 100 different networks are secured by the same amount of security. and that kind of gets people thinking about, okay, so it's a hundred different chains. It's not that we're, we're not like vertically scaling the thing. So it's horizontally scaled. The other analogy that I tend to use is saying that it's like um, going from a single, you know, core CPU to a multi-core CPU. So it, if you're a single threaded throughput, if that's your limit in your application, like if you're, transacting with only one store then the scaling will probably not improve because you're still you're in this single threaded environment but if you're interacting with a hundred stores and they're all on a hundred different shards then you will probably increase scaling you know a hundred times but can we go back when you just said like sharding the shard each one like this is about as, as i've understood it's about sort of like taking one larger piece of data and breaking it into multiple smaller pieces of data is that correct i mean in the database world you might think of it that way if you have like i mean so d sharding in a database can be done in multiple ways right like if your application it's usually like domain specific so if your application is um you're dealing with like uh data from a customer like th that you have very large customers you might give each customer their own shard in your like database layer um, but if you're dealing with something like logging then maybe e a week is a shard or if you're dealing with like very large data sets then indeed you break down that piece of data into multiple sets by some logic and spread it out over multiple databases or multiple shards yeah so it's domain specific and in the blockchain world the way that people typically talk about it is that you break it up by like smart contract essentially or by application. So your application would run on shard A and the other person's application runs on shard B. Can we take one step back here? Because I, I don't think this was totally articulated, but like what what exactly what is exactly is the problem that's being solved by sharding? Sure. So the problem is that, you know, essentially when, when a series of transactions is broadcast to the network, so if there are like 10 transactions broadcast to the Ethereum network right now, 
uh, every single node in the network has to package them into block. Um, and you know, you have this replication of data that occurs all around the world. So everyone needs to be aware of the latest state. Everyone needs to kind of download the latest head. Um, and as you can imagine, like, you know, like, you know, we have things like fast sync and parity warp sync, of course, but if you're running a full Ethereum node, that's over 1.2 terabytes at the moment of, of speaking. Um, and you probably won't an be able to do this on your mobile phone. Yes, an archival node. So you won't be able to do this probably on your phone or on your laptop uh, to have the full complete security and store the entire state of the network. So essentially with sharding, we split up this, we, we split up the state of Ethereum into a bunch of smaller chains. So if you can imagine if we have a hundred chains, uh, each of these chains is in charge of 1% of those entire 1.2 terabytes of state. Um, and essentially you're able to kind of, every shard is its own universe. So as Frederick mentioned, there are possibly like, you can have smart contracts that are specific on like shard one, or you're going to have accounts uh, for people that are specifically on shard one and nodes in the network are only in charge of these smaller chains. They're essentially dealing with like very small pieces of the Ethereum state. Uh, and of course we're aiming to go past hundred shards to make it even, you know, even better and more efficient. So you're solving the parallelizability um, issue that if you're, you know, like there is no parallelizability at the moment, everyone has to process everything um, and be aware of everything that's happening. So you, you want to make sure that you're solving this problem by, you know, reducing that overhead. I think the first time I heard about this, I, I mean, I, I made the analogy to like torrenting. And I think, Frederick, we talked about that. There's a big difference, as, as far as I understand, between like the way you do like BitTorrents and the way you would do actually sharding. And yet the way it sounds when you describe it or the way it looks when you look up the definition, it tends to sort of have a similarity. It's, I mean, you have a point in that like BitTorrent, you kind of take this whole data piece and you you split it up into chunks that are, are deterministic and like you can define what those are and then you split up like you download these chunks at your own like order that you like the or it's order independent in how you download it. And once you have all the chunks, you have all, the whole file. Um, sharding is not the same at all in like um, how you split things up. So it, the, the, you don't necessarily like it, it's ideal to split everything up in a sort of even distribution so that each shard is responsible for the same amount of data. Uh, but that's probably not how it's going to happen. Uh, it's usually not how sharding schemes can end up, or not at least not if you don't have full control over where to put data. Um, probably it'll be like one shard gets a really popular DAP, and then that shard becomes a lot larger than all the other shards. Um, but then it's kind of uh, similar in like in what Raul was saying that instead of like having to download a whole file and like need to store that whole thing on your computer, you can just deal with one chunk of that data. But that's dissimilar to BitTorrent because you can't really do anything with one chunk of a BitTorrent file. Um, whereas you can do something with just one like um, piece of the, the Ethereum network by having access to one shard? No, it's a very good question. It's a, it's, it's all about really, you know, it's all about how, what are you solving? And it's, it's definitely like parallelizability and it's definitely like being able to, you know, have a, still maintain a degree of security while splitting up the state into smaller pieces. One of the things that we'll get into later is the power of sharding really comes down to compressibility of information. And um, like, so you're still going to have an Ethereum main chain which is in charge of kind of coordinating, you know, what's happening across this entire universe of shards. 
So if, if you can imagine right now on the on an Ethereum main chain on a block, you store a series of transactions and a few other fields that contain metadata. Whereas in sharding on the main chain, you would store little pieces of messages of what happened on the shards, and we call these crosslinks. So imagine that you know on the main chain block, you would have a little message that reads, "Okay, here's what happened on shard one. Uh, X number of people validated this. Uh, there were like you know there were like these many transactions happening, and this is the latest shard block with the latest shard block hash." So you store this little short message um, inside of the main chain block. So you're able to basically compress, you know, all the metadata and all the things that happen on a shard into a small message that then is going to be finalized on the main chain block, if that makes sense. So essentially, you're you're basically using the main chain uh, and leveraging its finality and its and its power um, to compress down everything that happened across the shard universe. So that's essentially where the power of this comes from. You know, you're not making any machine more powerful than it, than it already is. Like, you know, you know, it's it's not it's not like it's it's we we talk about this a lot with Preston in terms of like okay you have like a, you have have one core and you also you have more cores your, your computer becomes more powerful but in this case your computer doesn't become more powerful with sharding uh, it's just able to kind of leverage the strength of this network that becomes more powerful by compressing information down into a main chain block so yeah Preston can elaborate more you, you could say like you're not making one core more po- powerful like in a, in that same model of thinking that you're not right. you're not like increasing the gigahertz of your cpu anymore you're just adding more cores onto the die so in right. essence like one core is never getting better you're just getting more of them yeah exactly so you can do more things in parallel but those those same tasks will be just as expensive in, ter- in terms of computation as they were before you can just do more of them at the same time I want to take a step back and, and talk a little bit about the spec and like how that has evolved over time. Cause I know it's like a big thing um, on the internet and people are like, you know, we had Casper and then Casper was kind of evolving over multiple specs and then it was kind of shut down. And now we have Shasper. So <laughs> Casper and sharding put together <laughs> and, and people are like, Oh, well, what's that? And, and, how do, why does this keep changing? And what's Isn't there happening? a character that's emerged from this? Like Shaps, Shasper McShasperson or something? This is somewhere on, on Twitter. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but so when you started working on this, I think the spec was relatively easy and clear and kind of easy to jump in. And it's, it's how, like, how has it evolved over time and how have you guys been working with that? Yeah, when when we first started, the spec was really clear, and that's kind of what prompted us to come together. Is you know, this is clear. Well, like, well, let's start working on it. As time went on, like pretty much as soon as we found our feed and started building, um, the researchers and and those guys sort of came up with a lot of different ideas, and and so the the first spec as we know it was completely changed. Uh, and then we came up with the new spec. We and we all met in, in um, Taipei, Taiwan, to talk about it. And there was a system of new actors, and kind of the whole sharding thing would look entirely different. And since then, it's it's happened again. Um, you know, in each of these times that I'm referring to, we have we've had to sort of start over everything because just the, like the pieces that we've had just are not going to work for the for the new iteration of the spec. And even recently, there's a, a, another new one just a couple of days ago, but this is sort of a, a minor one. If you're thinking of like the, the semantic um, versioning of things, we started with version zero, and then we had a breaking spec change to version one, and then another 
breaking spec change to version two, and now we're on 2.1. And all of this is over the course of like six months. So it's been really volatile for for development and kind of hard to do. And some teams uh, in particular are, are, are not even starting development because they're sort of waiting for things to cool off before they, they really ramp up. But for, for us, it's been a little bit painful to go through those radical changes, but at the same time, it's a super, super bleeding edge software. And we're, we, we really embrace these changes because they do, it is a better spec in the end. So, so it's kind of hard to be upset about like throwing away that work when this is so much better. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about what exactly changed um, and for the listeners. So originally sharding was going to be done through a smart contract. So you would imagine you would have a contract on the Ethereum main chain that would be taking in these little messages that I told you about earlier, Anna, that's like, hey, uh, these people signed off on these blocks on this shard. Um, this is the latest shard block cache. And it would be storing a lot of these messages inside of the main chain inside of the smart contract. So we call these collation headers. And that was kind of part of the original spec. So the idea here is that, you know, you leverage the power of the main chain because once you submit a transaction to that contract, it's going to be on the main chain. Um, and you're able to still have this giant, you know, sharded network with actors all participating and doing things on the side. Uh, additionally, Casper was going to be done through a smart contract. So you would have a hybrid approach where you have proof of work and also proof of stake through this Casper smart contract where people can deposit Ether, uh, become validators, and start processing the system. So a lot of questions naturally arose, like, how do we deal with gas costs in this case, right? Like, it seems very, very, very crazy that we're going to have to pay gas uh, to just participate in the sharding system on this contract, uh, even though it's just like a management finality system. Also, the Casper spec, like, um, you know, it doesn't make much sense for Casper validators to be different than sharding validators. Because, you know, the original idea was that they're going to be two separate contracts. And they were already pretty expensive to get into. I believe Casper at that time was around 1,500 Ether, just vegan staking. So one of the natural questions that arose was, how can we merge Casper and sharding validators so they can be the same type of actor and the same type of person, um, either for like greater participation, um, maybe like uh, cheaper entry fees to become a validator. And another thing was, you know, how can we deal with the, the gas cost issue? Right? Because by having sharding done through a contract, that would limit us. That would limit the number of shards because all the load would have to be handled by this contract. So you know, if we eliminated this, um, we would be able to have you know as many shards as we ever wanted. So that that was kind of the original discussion that sparked the change, and that's been happening for a few months. Like, how can we shift away from that? How can we store information off chain? And naturally, it led to the idea that we should have a side chain um, that's going to be full proof of stake with Casper. And it's going to be the manager for the sharding system. So it's going to be something that's on the side, uh, and it's only going to be referencing the Ethereum main chain via block caches. So that was the idea. That's currently the that's actually the current spec, um, and you know it solves a lot of the problems elegantly, and it just gives us a whole new environment that we can build in without depending on you know the old EVM, um, you know smart contracts on the main chain, etc. This is really this is really interesting. Um- one of the questions I actually was going to ask you just generally was um, if there were other, so this is kind of like to try to position you versus sort of other scaling solutions that are out there. Since you're now thinking of moving off chain, like, do you see other solutions in the market that are kind of trying to tackle the same thing? Because there's a lot of, I mean, there's at least there's a number of off chain solutions emerging. Is that something that you now see kind of, are you in that camp a little bit? Maybe that was a little bit of poor choice of words on my behalf. So we're not we're not exactly off chain. It's going to be I like see, a side okay, chain. So it's uh, you know off chain solutions are kind of like 
you have these servers that kind of process things off the chain and they handle them on chain. So we're actually building a whole new blockchain um, that's going to be pegged to the Ethereum main chain via block hashes. So it's not necessarily like an off-chain solution, kind of like Plasma. Um, it's you know, it taking you know, it's you, Preston. Maybe you can help elaborate. Yeah. So, um, I guess the version one spec of sharding was that we would have these shards that, as Rule said, they were interfacing with the contract directly on the Ethereum main chain, the proof of work chain. But since then, we've we've added, a, I guess, another layer in this in this kind of system where there's um, a proof-of-stake beacon chain that's running alongside the proof-of-work main chain, and that's occasionally being checkpointed. So in that sense, it's off of the main proof-of-work chain, but it's okay. still another another blockchain. And then in the end, what we're thinking is that the proof-of-work chain will go away and the beacon chain will serve as the top-layer main canonical chain. The way I kind of think about it... Um a little bit half sarcastically <laughs> is, is you're kind of building Ethereum 2.0 as a separate chain outside of the main one. And then eventually when Ethereum 2.0 is like ready and everyone is kind of happy with that, people will start using that more than 1.0 and 1.0 kind of. Is this called off. a slow fork? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> type of fork. Yeah. It brings to question, like, how are we going to migrate from Ethereum 1 to Ethereum 2, and it's a question I get a lot, like, does it, uh, the question I hear is, so what's going to happen to my smart contract on the Ethereum main chain? And I don't, I don't know if you know, guys know anything about that, but I haven't heard, the two, I guess we haven't really been talking too much about migration strategy, but it, it is an interesting question, like, is it going to be a fork, or a soft fork, hard fork, will the, will the Ethereum main chain still continue on somewhere as, like, a old Ethereum yeah. or I don't I mean, know. You could possibly, like in the spec that I looked at last, it was talked about as if uh, the all of the shards are uh, homogenous. So they, they all run the exact same code, the exact same VM, et cetera, et cetera. And probably they'll run some WebAssembly VM. But and it's entirely possible that you just make Ethereum 1 a shard of Ethereum 2. And so it'll, it'll live on, but as a shard of the network. So Preston, you were talking about uh, how you guys were working on this and kind of iterating. I just wanted to ask the question because like Vitalik posted at one point of like a guide of here's things that you can work on that probably won't change, like networking and whatever else. Have you seen yeah. that there is such a space that like some part of your code kind of lives on through the iterations or do you literally start over each time? Yeah, so with the with the first uh, iterations of the spec, it it was mo like almost entirely starting over, which has been actually kind of positive for our project because we've sort of been learning how how to work together mm -hmm. and how to like have our project set up. So, like kind of trashing everything and throwing it away, we've already learned lessons from from the from the six months that we've been doing this. So, it's been it's been beneficial in that way. But we, a lot of the things that Vitalik said, work on these two and they will live on, or you can work on these and they're not going to go away. It's sort of stuff that we thought, you know, it's not as interesting as, as the other stuff. Like how do these actors interact and how, how do the, like building the pieces, like the essential pieces of the sharding 
I don't know, things you need for a meaningful proof of concept where stuff like networking, you, I mean, you really need that and you can kind of see that that's not going to change very much. We know that it's going to be a sharded universe and that we need some kind of mechanism to communicate from person to person. So we, we kind of deferred that those kind of things to later to work on the more interesting, like the more exciting and interesting stuff. But as a result that those, those are changing faster. Well, I mean, I've never heard of a startup that didn't at some point have a complete rewrite of their code base. So <laughs> I think that's yeah. regardless of whether you're operating on your own spec or someone else's spec, it like, feels like that inevitably happens. When you introduce things like sharding or the sidechain, what would happen if you actually then did a hard fork? Like what, what happens? I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to understand what, what would happen to that sidechain. Or Ethereum. Yeah. 2.0. So if we did a if we did a hard fork on the main chain. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you know. So like like person was mentioning earlier, the side chain it has like it points to hashes on the main chain at certain checkpoints. So you would imagine a block on on the side chain like okay block ten is pointing to like a hash from block you know whatever on the main chain. So essentially, if there's a fork, um, there would have to be a side chain fork as well uh, because there would have to be a uh, you know one of them is going to have, have to be pointing to the latest head on the fork chain and one of them is going to be pointing to the latest head on you know the original one so that's i think that's essentially how it would work um and yeah it would have to be i'm guessing like forks all the way down in that case which you know that's 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 might not be very efficient so it's something that hasn't been talked about as much and that's a very good question yeah i was gonna say Ro, what do you think about like a contentious hard fork where it's sort of the community split on where to go like what you described sounds easy if we all agree but what if we don't so you know, then then certain people won't be. You mean like people won't be moving to the fork if it happens? Like if like people participants in the sharding um, ecosystem, like maybe validators, they agree on a different proof of work sure. chain. Well, then then the side chain would fork as well, and you're and like Raul said, it was it, it would kind of become forks all the way down, and you just end up with yeah uh, a bunch of different things. And I mean, in a related way, something that's uh, pretty scary when you're talking about charting and not scary from like a high level point of view, but like from an implementation point of view is reorgs. You want basically instant finality. So you want a proper like PBFT, like Tendermint, like algorithm or something where you kind of have predict at least predictable finality. Because if you have a long reorg on like the, the main sharding chain, like the side chain, then you would probably have to reorg all the child shards and you're kind of getting into this uh, cascading reorg situation that becomes extremely expensive just computationally to do and time intensive. So you'd probably kind of end up missing blocks if it's, it becomes very complicated. So the only thing that I've kind of heard proposed is to have some sort of either instant finality or like predictable finality. So, you know, within 10 blocks, you have some instant finality checkpoint, like in Casper situation. And um, then you can kind of rely on those checkpoints to be accurate. But then what, what happens if like the main chain hard forks, I mean, there's a choice to be made in the implementation here, right? It's like either you like have some governance method to pick one of them just, or just pick one of them at random or, I don't know, or like, I don't, yeah, 
It's a it's a tough question. I think that's the most sensible solution because as you were saying earlier, like Ethereum 2.0 is going to be kind of like you know something that's happening on the side, um, and once once it becomes you know solid enough and good enough, people will be migrating fully to it, and then the 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 main chain will be deprecated. So I think probably that's a sensible solution, given that you know it's it, it the side chain will not be mature yet for a while. Um, if it were mature at the same degree as the main chain is, then I think we would have a problem and we'd have to probably do this complicated reorg structure. But I think the community would be fine with some sort of, you know, consensus on what of the main chain forks, which one, you know, should the side chain point to. So I think that's pretty sensible. At some point earlier, you mentioned um, you didn't want to have like gas prices being an issue and you didn't want to have sort of a rent associated with it from what I understood. Um, but like how how are you actually going to solve for that? So by having it on a contract, um, that was the original issue. Like you know, you you have you have the starting manager contract as part of the system. But once again, it's a contract on the main chain. You're going to have to pay gas to call its methods. So by just doing it as a side chain, where like it's an actual protocol layer construct that's like built in and like enshrined into the protocol, you don't have to deal with paying uh, you know uh, gas to do these operations. Okay. Yeah. And so there was a long discussion about the same thing with Casper and the Casper contract of like, you need voting transactions to be able to vote on Casper blocks and stuff. So the question is like, do, do, are those normal transactions that pay gas probably doesn't make sense. So it was discussed that they become like some special type of transaction that are cost free. Uh, but then the question is like, can people just spam those vote transactions and, um, yeah, it becomes a bit tricky. And I think a lot of those discussions, like there's ways to work around that. We could have solved those problems, but it all becomes a little bit easier and simpler if there is, you know, a kind of domain specific chain that only deals with this specific problem that doesn't have the same gas model at all that, that Ethereum main chain has. So in, in the existing spec now, this side chain that, it, that we've been talking about, it, it has a pretty unique like proper like look to it um can you guys dig into a little bit about like what is the consensus algorithm what is this random beacon that people are talking about and like what is the the design of this side chain sure well we can take a few steps back and talk about security of sharding so i was telling i was telling you guys i know frederick that um when you have a sharded system you're essentially splitting up like the 1.2 terabytes of the current network if you would imagine into smaller chunks so essentially if you have a network of, a, of like 100 shards uh, the bad thing here is that it, will, it'll, it would only take an attacker like 1% of the hash power in proof of work, for example, to take control of an entire shard, right? So that's not a very good thing. It becomes a lot easier to attack, um, like reducing, you know, reducing th the state into smaller chains uh, makes it easier for malicious actors to just hurt the system. And if you can imagine if one person controls one shard and there are transactions across shards, then the whole system could break down, right? Because you, would, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to trust like, Shard one, where, for example, like the CryptoKitties contract would live or something like that. So the issue here is that how can we maintain a degree of security and how can we how can we solve this problem? And one of the main things that has always been part of the spec is we we reshuffle validators across shards. So if you would imagine that you know if uh, if all four of us were like validators on shard one um, at a certain period of time, and this period is measured by block number, uh, so like every say every five blocks, for example, we're going to be validating stuff on shard one. And then like a few blocks later, we're going to be on shard 10. A few blocks later, we're going to be on like shard 13. Um, and the thing is that we should never know in advance which shard we're going to be validating on. 
So this prevents like cartel like behavior where people can aggregate and be like, Hey, let's like spam this. Let's like get together. Let's all collude and let's like mess things up. Because for example, I'm not going to know that I'm going to be working alongside you guys on shard one um, before I'm selected. So that's kind of like the idea here. Um, and to do this, you need some sort of, you know, trusted um, source of decentralized sort of random so source of randomness where it's built into the protocol. Everyone can agree on the source of randomness um, and people are like reshuffled across these shards. So that's something that's always been part of the system, right? Um, and I think there have been a lot of schemes proposed and this random beacon chain is kind of really breakthrough in, in kind of the way it achieves this. Do you imagine that this uh, source of randomness will be used in like smart contracts as well? Because that's a big issue today is like people try to use like the block hash as a random number or something and they run into all sorts of problems all the time. Like that's the biggest attack vector on smart contracts today is people trying to create random numbers. It's going to be part of the protocol. So it'll be accessible ideally to, to contracts on, in the sharding system. So that's going to be good. We're looking forward to it. It's been kind of amazing to hear like the randomness beacon has become like you do hear about that now in a lot of different contexts that I wouldn't have expected it. That's something relatively new that you guys have added or is that always there? So it's been, you know, it's been, um, it's part of this, it's been part of, so the, the term random beacon, um, it's not created by Ethereum. It was actually originally from Definity. Yeah. <clears throat> so they, they had a similar method where they had this distributed source of randomness, uh, to something called BLS, uh, threshold relay. And, you know, it's, we're kind of been adapting some of the ideas uh, into the system, but th that term has been coined by Definity before. Do you think Ethereum will be based on BLS as well? That's the latest I heard, but I'm not sure. Um, we're thinking about it, still point of discussion. I think we're having a sharding uh, and beacon chain implementers call uh, very soon where this is going to be one of the topics to be discussed. So we've talked a little bit about how the spec has evolved how do you guys think it will evolve in the future? What does the future of sharding look like? What's the what's the roadmap ahead? <laughs> Easy question. Well, um, as you may have seen, the the sharding spec is is being laid out to be built in in different phases. So, assuming that that's good, a good idea, I think that's the way we'll be moving forward. We have phase one, which is you know sort of. The basics of of sharding uh, it kind of foregoes the execution, the you know the virtual machine, and some other like other optimizations that can come in phase two. But I you know I, and I don't remember all of the phases off the top of my head, but I think there are six of them, and it's going to be like a two to four year process to to get all of these built and and rolled out. Maybe Earl has more context on that. Sure. So, you know, at the moment, we're just focused on the core logic, which is, you know, the consensus process, the security, the validator reshuffling, how do we set up the system from the start? I think after that, we'll be talking about execution. And yeah, I think Frederick will be, you'll be doing probably a Wasm, uh, you know, VM. Um, I think that's the general consensus. And, you know, after that, I think one of the things that we'll be talking about is like, clients connected to the network. So we have something called stateless clients, which is the idea that you can have clients that essentially don't need pieces of the state and can function and kind of be even more lightweight than light clients and still maintain a degree of security. So that's something that's, you know, it's kind of been pushed off to later phases. And then down the line, we'll be talking about dApps and like cross shard transactions and execution. Wow. So how can you, how can you split up the state so that if you have a CryptoKitties contract on shard one and you have your account on like shard five, how do you interact between the two shards? Um, how can we do this in a way that doesn't break parallelizability? 
um, in a way that's asynchronous. So that's something that's been pushed off to later phases as well. So, you know, there's a trend here. The more you go down the line, the more high level it becomes in the sense that um, you know, we're thinking more about the, the users and the dApps and things built on Ethereum. At the moment right now, we're at the very core levels of how to make this work. Yeah, other questions to think about are like, how do we rebound shards? How do we introduce, uh, you know, like the concept of quadratic sharding, which is shards within shards and so on, like to have an exponential improvement? And there's like just so much to to think about. Yeah. For- yeah. So when people, th- when people hear like, you know, two to four years or four years plus, that's, that's probably thinking about the full complete Ethereum 2.0 roadmap with like cross shard and, you know, advanced execution, super quadratic sharding, all these different things. Um, but you know, it's definitely something gradual. It's not like we're going to be waiting for four years before launching anything to the community. Um, I think there will be definitely different it's not, it's not We're just like sitting in a closet and working away for four years without showing anything. Yeah, yeah. I think they'll, they'll, it'll be deployed in phases. Like you'll you'll have something deployed to the community where it's like, you know, basic proof state consensus and a beacon chain. You'll have something released where it's like the Wasm VM uh, with cross shard transactions. You'll have these in gradual phases. So I think people will 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 probably react very favorably to these uh, as they are released. Something I'm personally uh, very excited about is cross shard transaction. I think that's the that's the sort of holy grail, and probably will be the pr- hardest problem because if you look at sharding in like the database sharding way, getting shards, uh, getting data from all the shards and like interacting with them, that becomes a pretty hard problem. If you look at it in a CPU way, doing uh, parallelized computation with shared memory is really hard and like why Rust was invented <laughs> in a way. And like every time you you shard something, how you access data and how you get those shards to work together, that always becomes like the hardest part of the system. Yeah. What are you guys most excited uh, about for uh, for implementing or, or researching into this? I'm personally very excited about the execution layer. Um, and how that's going to function with the shards. So in the beginning, we're not even going to be thinking about um, like the validity of transactions in the shards. So essentially, you know, a block right now is currently capped by the gas limit. So you know, you can have a bunch of different transactions as long as like things are under um, under the gas limit. So for for sharding in particular, we're actually not caring about gas limit at all in the shard blocks in the beginning. We're actually each shard block is going to be around one megabyte. Uh, it might have changed in the latest spec, but I think that's still the case. So you can pack as much as you want in that one megabyte. It can be invalid transactions. It can be valid transactions. It can be, it can be you know, it, it, you're not even going to look at gas when you're processing transactions. Instead, down the line, we're going to have these people called executors um, who are still kind of, you know, we still have to think about even more, but they're going to be coming in, uh, looking at the parts of the state tree that they want and running the transactions inside of them. And then from there, basically calculating a post-state route and doing all that sort of stuff, um, which is probably done through a WASM, you know, runtime. So that's uh, that's something I'm personally excited about. Um, at the moment, we're not even thinking about it with the sharding spec. We're just focused around the consensus mechanisms, coordination of shards, and security. But that'll be something really cool once it comes along. Yeah, and so I'm excited about sort of uh, state like stateless clients and how peer-to-peer communication discovery is going to work. Like what I'm really driven by is whatever I can do to make the biggest uh, global impact. And I think that one of the barriers for global and mass adoption is that it's kind of hard to, hard to participate in Ethereum and it's 
because it's it can only go seven transactions a second and like you need to sync your client and that takes time and or you need to trust some i don't know third party to run a node for you and you send transactions there so i'm really excited about like how are we going to make that better and how are we going to really make sharding easy to be in the hands of not just developers and node operators but also end users you mentioned so i have just this like sort of a last thought here too you mentioned you mentioned Definity and kind of getting some ideas from Definity. Are there any other projects that are really exciting to you right now, maybe outside of the Ethereum ecosystem, where you're getting some new ideas that you're bringing in? Um, probably, you know, I think probably with respect to like zero knowledge proofs and the execution context, like excited about like what Starkware is doing, um, getting Starks, uh, you know, and the side, you know, in parallel also like the uh, TrueBit execution game um, is something that I'm excited about. I'm personally excited about it too, but along those lines, I think are things that can be really relevant to sharding. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of hard to, uh, to read everything out there, but there are some like layer two solutions, you know, like plasma or off chain computation through TrueBit or state channels that, that are all going to work in, in, in harmony with, with sharding. So like we kind of, in order to have like the best experience for everybody, all of these solutions will come together in the end. So uh, things like ZK Snarks and those privacy-related uh, functionality are also really interesting and exciting. Uh, but yeah, there's like sort of a lot of stuff out there. Um, okay, so I just as we were as we were talking, I did find out the name of the um, Casper slash Sharding character that. I believe credit goes to Lane for coming up with Shasper McShardface. That is actually the name <laughs> that was floated for this character. And I don't exactly know what this character does, but it is related to what we were talking about. Wanted to find it to bring it home and wrap it up. I want to also just say <laughs> thank you guys so much for joining us and uh, having this conversation about sharding. It's not an easy topic. And I really appreciate that you guys let me ask some of my or maybe more basic questions, and I, I feel like I have a much better sense of what this is, thanks to you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. So just before we sign off, how can people get in touch with you guys? Yeah, so um, check out our website, prismaticlabs.com. Um, there, there are links to our Gitter page where we do um, almost all of our communications. We also do bi-weekly Medium updates, uh, YouTube, um, we're on Twitter. You can reach out to, to me or Raul. And, we're, you know, we're happy to answer any questions. Like if, if you're interested in getting involved, we'd really love to talk to you. Yeah, always looking for that. Um, we, make a, we make a really active effort to ensure our documentation and our issues are friendly towards beginners. You know, there's a lot of context to know before you begin working on sharding, but at least we try to leave um, kind of entry points for people to come in. And we emphasize a lot how important contributors are to this. Um, so yeah, if you're remotely interested and even if you're not familiar with charting, but you want to get involved, please get in touch. We'll be happy to onboard you. Very cool. Well, thank you guys so much for being here and talking with us and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.